Sunday nights recently are devoted to sermons you have asked me to deliver about specific passages in the Bible, and I'm enjoying this. And whether or not it stirs up more interest in the evening assembly, there is no doubt it's good for those of us who are here. I'm going to be reading from the English Standard Version in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And I know that you will immediately recognize the text. And I believe we also all recognize our need to refresh our minds with portions of the Word we have previously heard and learned and are living. 1 Corinthians 13. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind, does not envy or boast, is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes... The partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. I've mentioned this before. I am concerned about how we use Bible words. Maybe not us, Christians who assemble on a Sunday evening. Maybe not Christians in general so much. But in our culture and in the general religious community, Bible words are used loosely, adapted to the current culture and trends. Sometimes the biblical context of words are ignored or even denied. And modern men and women attempt to impose their own self-serving definitions onto words in the Bible. It is so important for us to be people who use Bible words in the way the Bible uses those words. We should be the people who not only speak where the Bible speaks, but we show through our lives and in our conversation 
what Bible concepts mean as defined by God, revealed in His Word, and as we apply them in daily life. So, here is this word love. In general societal use, we use the word love in almost any kind of context with little objective definition. We love our sports teams, our favorite foods, our preferred coffee, our movies, or TV shows. Then we use the same word when we describe our relationship to our spouse, our children, and our Lord. If there was ever a Bible word that needs clear, objective definition, it is love. See, the word love and the concept of love in Scripture is God's intellectual property. So we must let Him tell us what the word means and then put that concept into our minds and then translate that into how we live and react. We make claims about our love. Husbands and wives say to each other, I love you. We say we love our children and our grandchildren, our brethren, our neighbors, our friends. We acknowledge that Jesus even said, love your enemies. We agree with all of that. But what does the word mean as defined by God? The person who requested this particular sermon was focused on the description of love in verses 4 through 7. I've been through this before, but we'll go through it again now. Love is patient. This is interesting. <clears throat> it is one thing to have a clear, academically-based understanding of the word patience. It is not an enormous task to pull a dictionary off the shelf and look up the English word patience, or as we do today, look it up on the internet. And then you can dig deeper and look up the Greek word Paul used, which literally means long-tempered. But the greater challenge is not just to have a good concept of what the word means, but rather the greater challenge is to determine that you will let what God says about patience develop discipline in your own mind and in your life. The challenge is to learn patience from the Bible so well and to be so committed to its faithful execution that in actual life, when you're irritated and you're frustrated and you tend to be impulsive and undisciplined, what you know God has said about patience will restrain you. When the rage is road rage, you've already decided you're not going to let some crazy driver pull you into a fight. Because you know what God has said about the discipline you ought to have. When people disappoint you or irritate you, you will not treat them with cold indifference or take quick and immature justice in hand. When the news, the politics, and trends of the world upset us, we will be disciplined in our response, knowing what God has said and what God has illustrated about patience. 
The challenge is not just to learn the definition of the word, but to learn God's definition. To see patience in Jesus and in the Father and be so committed to this virtue, it becomes a part of your responses to life and to people. It's part of love. Now, I mentioned the Greek word, which comes from two words meaning long-tempered. Now, most of us don't have to be taught how to be short-tempered. But this concept is long-tempered. And the same word here is sometimes translated long-suffering, slow to anger, willing to endure wrongs without pulling the trigger that fires some explosion. If we have the kind of love Paul describes in this passage, that kind of love includes this strong element of patience. Love is kind. And I'm told that inside this word in the Bible, there's the idea of being useful. A kind person is disposed to be helpful, to be useful, looking for opportunities to meet the needs of others, even if under very unpleasant circumstances. We are there to continue to be kind and to be helpful. Would you listen to what Jesus said in Luke 6, 32 to 36? Luke 6, 32 to 36. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. There's the illustration. There's the perfect model. The Most High, He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. The proving ground for love is how patient we are, how kind we are. A wise man declared in Proverbs 19.22, that which makes a man to be desired is his kindness. Love does not envy. If you can't stand it when others succeed in greater measure than you, that's envy. If your buddy has a new truck you think you really deserve, and that eats at you. If your co-worker gets the raise you believe you should have had, and that eats at you inside and stays with you. If your friends get the attention and applause you think you should have had, and you burn inside about all that. 
if you just can't stand to look at them anymore because they have what you believe you deserve. That's destructive to you. It's immature. And that attitude exhibits an absence of the love Paul describes in that text. Do you remember who exhibited envy that led, led to death? Matthew twenty-seven eighteen. for envy they handed Jesus over to die. And have we read James 4 and verse 2? He said, you desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. Envy will kill you. And as you die, the irony will be you still don't have that truck or raise or applause. Envy does not boast. I was thinking about this one time in the study of Romans. In Romans chapter 3 and 4 where Paul said Abraham had no grounds or reason to boast because he was a recipient of what God gave. He received righteousness from God, not by merit, but by the activity of his simple faith. So boasting was excluded. We are familiar with that concept in Romans. But then we start thinking and talking, and we come to this question, what could we boast about? When you stop and consider that everything we have... Every talent, opportunity, challenge, blessing, gift, time, good health. We cannot boast about anything, really. Every good and perfect gift, James said, comes from God. The braggart tries to impress others by reciting his great accomplishments. And sometimes it takes a very common form. We say to people, after all I've done for you, you treat me like this? Or we issue reminders and we recite our resume of good works and glorious successes. We find ways sometimes in casual conversation to hold a parade in our honor. Or to step up and receive a trophy or demand a standing ovation. Love doesn't act that way. The humble, loving person is aware that everything he has is an undeserved gift from God. 1 Corinthians 4, 7 says, What do you have that you did not receive? And Proverbs 27, 2 says, Let another man praise you, not your own mouth. Love is not rude. One translation says, Does not act unseemly. Bad manners impolite, rude. We must all guard against needlessly offending someone. Love has good manners. It is courteous and polite and sensitive to the feelings of others and always seeks to discover tact, but never with sacrificing truth. I read about a man one time who was generally lacking in manners, and some of you have heard me tell this story before, forgive me. He never cared much for courtesy, propriety, or warmth, even within his own family, his own marriage. 
Somebody observed about this man back in the time when courtesy had greater honor that he never opened the door for his wife, often saying in a very joking, trivial way, she doesn't have two broken arms. After many years of marriage, his wife died. And at the funeral, he had a wake-up call. And as the pallbearers brought her casket out to the hearse, the husband rushed from the family group, went to the hearse and opened the door, and then turned to the crowd and said, May God forgive me. A lifetime of regret came crashing down in that man's heart. Love is not rude. Love does not insist on its own way. It is not selfish. It doesn't yell all the time about my way and my rights and my needs. It has often been said that when you dig beneath bad behavior, when you track sin down to a root cause, when you see what's behind it all, you're always going to find selfishness. Alan Redpath said, The secret of every discord in Christian homes, communities, and churches is that we seek our own way and our own glory instead of His. Linsky said, Cure selfishness and you almost replant the Garden of Eden. Well, the love Paul describes here, the love perfectly exhibited by Jesus Christ, does not tolerate selfishness. If husbands and wives can learn this early, if children can discover this, if preachers and teachers will give attention to the teaching about this, we would be free of so much conflict. And by the way, aren't you glad that Jesus didn't insist on his rights? He would have stayed in heaven. But Philippians 2 tells the story of his unselfish humility that brought him to the earth. A monumental expression of love unseen among men. Love does not insist on its own way and is not irritable or resentful. In Philip's paraphrase, it is not touchy. Some people make everyone around them walk on eggshells. You've heard that expression. One little thing, one misinterpreted look or silent response and kaboom. Hypersensitive, easily offended. You don't have to say or do very much and you push that button. Love doesn't act that way and it does not rejoice at wrongdoing does not rejoice at wrongdoing. Actually, in the original language, there is a word here that in the first century was an accounting term. My daddy was an accountant. He kept track of every penny. He turned mileage and weight reports at a trucking company and pickup and delivery times into freight bills. And then he would watch for payments to come back. And he was subject to audits, so he kept track of every penny. It was his job. Do you know that some people have made it their job to watch 
to calculate, to keep track of every wrong. These people must have very well exercised memories, or maybe they write it down somewhere. Wonder if there is a spreadsheet where you can keep track of sins and errors of others, but without good attention to your own. Seems to me that would require a huge amount of time and observation and memory. Perhaps we should use our minds for higher purposes. Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing. It rejoices with the truth. Love is not glad when others do wrong. Love is looking for truth and righteousness and celebrating truth and righteousness when found. When someone you don't like falls into sin, you don't gloat. You grieve because they've left the truth. They've left their Lord. John is sometimes called the apostle of love because of statements that he made like this in 3rd John verse 4, I have no greater joy than this, to hear of my children walking in the truth. Love wants to know the truth and spread the truth and practice the truth. And love takes the deepest kind of pleasure when people obey the truth of God. Love bears and believes and trust and endures. Because you see, love is an attitude of mind that becomes the action of life. It is an attitude of mind that becomes the action of life. Do you remember on 9-11, when the people on the aircraft that went down in Pennsylvania knew they were soon to die, what they did? We know because we have in some cases recordings from voicemail systems and answering machines. Knowing they were minutes from death, they called their families, their wives, their children to say three very simple words. I love you. We need to make the love that God defines through Paul our priority now. And as this passage is studied and read over and over again, the truth of it ought to find a place in us each time. Each time that we read it, there should be self-inquiry, self-interrogation. Do I love God with a love that is passionate and active and daily? Do I love Jesus, Jesus who loved me? Do I love the writings the Holy Spirit gave in the Bible? Do you love your family, your friends, your church, your enemies? How should that love exhibit itself not just in your mind and understanding, but proving its existence over and over in your life? Is this image of love, this definition, seen in me? day after day, thought by thought, and word by word. Listen again. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. 
It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Perhaps this truth from God will prompt each of us to re-examine and think again about where we are here and then where we are in daily life. Let's be standing as we sing. To thee, O 